TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This message comes from Apple Card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Stephen Heller about his new book, 100 Classic Design Journals, about graphic design before it was called graphic design, and about whether design magazines have a future in print. I think the question has to be reformulated somewhat. Are there enough people out there who want to buy a magazine devoted to graphic design? Do people have passion or interest for that subject? Here's Debbie Millman. A couple of years ago, Stephen Heller came out with a remarkable book he co-authored with Veronique Vienne called 100 Ideas That Changed Graphic Design. This year, he's coming out with what might be considered a companion volume, 100 Classic Graphic Design Journals. This book is co-authored with Jason Godfrey, and it surveys the most influential graphic design magazines in the last 100 years. For designers, Stephen Heller and his many, many books have become indispensable guides, not only for the legacy of the profession, but also to cultural and political history. Stephen Heller joins me again for what has become a highly anticipated annual appearance on Design Matters. Hello, Steve. Hello, Debbie. So, Steve, you start 100 classic graphic design journals with the following statement. Man's desire to spread God's word sparked the printing revolution of the 16th century. Can you elaborate? Well, I can say that every Easter I get very religious, even though I'm not religious. And I must have written that around Easter time. (laughs) Was it all the chocolate eggs? It's all the chocolate eggs and the the bunnies. But was it... Because we were needing to print Bibles was... Well, that's it. I mean, the whole reason for the printing revolution was to put word, the word, on paper and distribute it to as many people as possible to increase literacy amongst those people who deserve to be literate. What do you mean by deserve to be literate? Well, there was a great class uh, distinction between the higher and the lower, almost as bad as it is today. Reading was power. Reading was reserved uh, mostly for the clerics. You go on to say industry's need to hawk consumables resulted in the commercial art of the late 19th century. 
an unprofitable sideline of the printing industry, what we now call graphic design, therefore evolved into an autonomous profession. I had to read that several times when I was reading the book over and over again, thinking design, graphic design was an unprofitable sideline of the printing industry. Mm -hmm. So give us some history here. Well, graphic design was never a profession in the 19th century. It only became a profession in the early 20th century. It was part of a printer's uh, repertoire. You walked into a commercial printer, and what you were buying was ink to paper, and you were buying the paper. The design of a page was something that was incidental, but more and more people wanted it because you just couldn't throw type any which way. You had to line it up. You had to put rules underneath it. You might put decoration nearby it. You were trying to attract the eye. So the printer was the godhead and the person who was doing the layout, the makeup, the composition was a a supplicant. That was pretty much the lost leader of the firm. So graphic design, the accidental industry. It was an accidental industry. I mean, at a certain point, aesthetics entered into it. And once aesthetics entered into it, it became more of a profession. But when it was mostly ad hoc, it was, you know, it was hard enough to print, no less put something in order. I remember when I first realized that package design was an actual discipline, and we're talking, you know, 30, 40 years ago, I realized that I actually had no idea who designed packages. I thought they were so terrible that the printers must just do it themselves for corporations. How wrong I was. How wrong you were. (laughs) There are designers that do bad work, too. So why a book about 100 graphic design journals? How did this idea sort of infiltrate your being? Well, I've always loved magazines and newspapers since I was working for one for over 30 years and working for others for about five to 10 years before that. That makes me about three when I started. Well, that's when, you know, Wunderkind. Yeah. So I wrote a lot about magazines and newspapers and publication design ever since I started writing. I've done books on book jackets. I've done books on magazine covers. I was cleaning out a closet for a sale and uh, found three books that I forgot I had written I had done a book a number of years ago called Mares to Emigre, which was avant-garde magazines of the 20th century, which just came out in paperback. And that was about magazines, magazines that I loved because they were unacceptable at their moment of incarnation. I've collected design magazines for many, many years because they're historical wellsprings. And I felt that because magazines are beginning to dissipate, this was a good time to revive the magazine history and do this book. It was also with Jason Godfrey. He did a book called Bibliographic about design books, and I wrote the introduction. So we were kind of thrust together in that regard. Now, you picked the number 100, um, 100 design journals. The first journal that you include was first printed in 1883. Were there journals prior to that that you didn't include because of the 100, or did you pick that particular journal because it was the first? Well, it wasn't the first, no. There were trade journals that came before that. 
to be honest, there's a certain arbitrary rationale for picking that particular one. I had it. It was oh, on my shelf. Okay. Well, how did you get these magazines? I mean, this is an incredible book. First of all, it's oversized. It's hardcover. It's four color throughout. It's absolutely beautiful. And it's chock full of image after image after image of covers of inside spreads. How did you find all of this information? How did you even know these magazines existed to even look for them? I knew they existed because I had most of them. There was once this guy, I don't even remember what print shop he uh, was owner of, but he closed it down and he parked a truck, one of those trailer trucks. I think it was like 22nd Street or 21st Street off of Fifth Avenue. And he invited a bunch of people to come in and take whatever he had in the truck, which was everything he had in his print shop. And I got there late. So I didn't get any of the printing material, but I did get specimen sheets and magazines because he had all the trades. These are trade magazines. You know, they're not magazines for the consumer. Some of them were much better than others in terms of the writing and in terms of the coverage. I didn't put in the ones that I thought were just so specifically trade-oriented that there was no interest in me reading them and no interest in me preserving or saving them. And so the hundred magazines that are included in this book, is this the thorough canon of graphic design journals from 1883 till now? No. I don't think I could do another book of 100. Jason and I, at around 94, scrambled for a little bit because I, I started bringing back the ones that I had rejected. But no, it's not the canon. There are a whole bunch that I did not put in. And some of them arguably could have been in. There was a magazine called Art Direction. It was, in fact, the first magazine I ever took my own work to uh, have published. And the editor at the time is now at the New York Times and has been there for 30 years. Why didn't you include it? Did he reject your work? My work was rejected, but that's not the reason. I don't hold a grudge. <laughs> uh, inside the magazine, the content of the magazine was very trade-oriented. It was very of the moment, and it was kind of boring. Covers were good. They always did good covers. And in fact, most design magazines did good covers, although some were more staid than others. And in terms of finding these publications prior to eBay or Google, if somebody were looking for them now, how would you go about even knowing what to look for when searching for them? You can go into databases at libraries and just look under uh, printing arts, uh, advertising arts. A lot of them were under that rubric, either printing or advertising. There's one that I adore and have collected for many years because it is such a historically important document called Advertising Arts. And it was a supplement to advertising and selling magazine. But it had its own true character. It was uh, written by some of the great industrial designers of the time, Walter Dorwin Teague, Ernst Elmo Calkins, Norman Bel Geddes. These were people who were luminaries then and today. And so to get their take on what was going on at the moment is a very valuable historical document. 
as you looked at the evolution of the trade journal from, say, Inland Printer all the way now to something like Vroom, what do you see as the sort of lead genes in that evolution? What are the things that you see remaining constant? What are the things that have fundamentally changed? Well, it's interesting. There is very little change. The things that change that are fascinating to see are those magazines that kind of tested the canon and busted the rules. And Emigre, of course, was one of those. There's a magazine called Jungle, which came out of Korea, and that broke many rules. There was one issue of the magazine Typographische Mittlungen, which I'm probably pronouncing incorrectly, but it's the Typographic Monthly, and it was a a magazine of one of the design organizations, one of the printing organizations. One of the issues in a string of issues that were handsome and contemporary uh, was a radical departure uh, by Jan Chikold called Elementary Typographie, and that's where he introduces to the printing world the new typography or the Neue typography. At that time, the type and the layout was largely thought of as an aesthetic fringe with socialist political implications. And this is described quite wonderfully in your book. How did that push forward the way that typography was not only being presented in magazines for other people that were interested in typography, but it also really seems to have influenced the art of the time, as well as the design, as well as the culture. It seems like a particularly interesting time in the 1920s when this was happening that um, really changed the world. Let's not give it too much import. No? It changed the way people thought about practicing graphic design, which was just becoming known as graphic design. We often credit W.A. Juigens with the term graphic design in 1921, but there were gebrauchsgrafikers, there were publicists, PR people, publicité. There were all sorts of people that were doing mise en page. Uh, I don't speak any of these languages, so if there sounds like you do, I'd, yes, I learned from uh, <laughs> from movies. Um, but what was happening in some of the magazines, like Das Plakat, for instance, which means the poster, you were seeing the introduction of art into advertising, and that took a few visionary types to say, okay, let's get something in here that's more colorful, that's more eye-catching that's less traditional, less staid. And that's essentially the difference between these trade magazines and the magazines that I talk about in Mares to Emigre. In fact, I have a section in Mares to Emigre that is just about graphic design magazines. So in a, in a sense, this is a spin-off from that chapter. And in that, I was talking about how the avant-garde gets filtered into the mainstream. And ultimately, once you call it avant-garde, it's not avant-garde anymore. Right. And that happened a lot. You know, it it was a client-based medium graphic design. So if the client didn't want you to go avant-garde, you went traditional or you went whatever way they wanted you to go. I want to go back to typographische Mitchellungen for a moment, only because Chickold's October 1925 issue 
was an October revolution all its own. I like um, that. <laughs> the communist Chickhold, who briefly changed his name from Jan to Ivan, may have found a coincidence with the Russian Revolution amusing, but for some readers it was revolting. And you write about how it was revolting, given the heavy dose of avant-garde dissonance and asymmetry injected into the otherwise straight-laced central axis commercial advertising of the time. It inadvertently made history and really influenced other trade magazines of the period to be more open to the new. But after that happened, it went back to its old sort of traditional self and other magazines then took the baton and ran with them. Yeah, and that always happens. I mean, take the AIGA. There are the old members, the young members, and there are the middle range members. And the older members are saying, we've been through that before, or we don't want to get into that because it's illegible, or what is our goal to begin with? There's always this flux and fluctuation between the old and the new and what's acceptable and what seems to be not just unacceptable, but inappropriate. Well, it's interesting because in Mares to Emigre, you get this sense of one revolution building on another and building on another in these magazines and publications that really each one made a difference. What's interesting about 100 Design Journals is that you get to see the sort of real-life trajectory of change where you have lots of things that sort of status quo, status quo, status quo, then something comes and enters the marketplace and changes everybody's mind about everything or changes some minds and other minds are sort of steadfast in keeping their minds as is. And then life goes back to normal and the same thing happens again in the next decade. Something else happens to change everything. And I really kind of loved the way each cultural shift resulted in this tremendous revolt, the um, complaining, the backlash, and then life went back to usual. Yeah, it was, after all, only graphic design and advertising. Although I thought it was very interesting that the golden age of German magazines happened in the 1920s. Six magazines started in Germany in the 1920s, and that doesn't include all the magazines that were publishing before and continued publishing through the decades after. Well, that was partly the irony of the era because the 1920s, the post-war era in Germany, they were devastated and they were hit hard by the Treaty of Versailles and had to pay reparations. So their economy was going down the tubes, which is what brought Adolf Hitler into power. But at a certain point, there was an influx of cash and Germany became a, uh, if not a healthy, at least a robust economy for a while. And that's when these magazines were operating. So there were advertising agencies and poster agencies in Germany, in Berlin mostly, but also in other areas in Munich. Also, Germany is is a hotbed of printing, whether it's uh, Cologne or other cities where printing had their headquarters. There had to be trade journals that disseminated the new and the improved to all of these people. So... What was interesting about these magazines is they looked through the design to sell the printing. If you look at a lot of these magazines like Reclama or um, Archive, these are all magazines about Gebrauchsgrafik, but they are also about printing. And so the printing texts are very dense. And then surrounding them are these beautiful images that we would die for today because they're done by the great 
German, Austrian, European poster artists. So it was um, printing cloaked with design. Yep. <laughs> um, there's a magazine that came out in 1886 and published until 1897 called Bradley, His Book. And it was created by Will Bradley. And you write that he was arguably the first American graphic designer and that this publication was really self-promotion more than um, a periodical that was covering news or cultural commentary. So in many ways, it was sort of a forefather to the Pushpin Monthly graphic. Can you talk a little bit about Bradley and what was he, he was like and what the reaction was to what was pretty much a self-promotional vehicle at that time? Well, Bradley was out of Chicago, where many designers hailed from, actually. And there were a lot of correspondence schools in Chicago and in the Midwest teaching commercial art. Bradley was a stylist. Uh, he was a type designer. He was an art director. So he embodied all of those things that W.A. Juiggins would call a graphic designer. He pretty much brought Art Nouveau to the United States. His style was Art Nouveau or derivative thereof. He did a number of magazines. One was called The Chapbook, which is very important. But he also did Bradley His Book. Now, Bradley His Book is a narrow, beautifully printed letterpress, two or three color folder, basically, maybe 20 pages, 24 pages, something like that. In it, there's a lot of advertising, but it's all advertising that he's made. There are articles, and the articles talk about type or they talk about culture. You're right. It's very much like what the Pushpin Graphic, the Pushpin Monthly, the Pushpin Almanac, all of those uh, self-promotionals were. It was about giving your reader, your audience content but at the same time, that content was clearly from the studio or the individual that was making the magazine. So it was really an advertorial. <laughs> well, it was an advertorial, but it wasn't an advertorial. I mean, an advertorial is so clearly about promotion. The stories are so clearly selling copy. But when Seymour Quast and Milton Glaser and the others at Pushpin did Pushpin Monthly, it was about... Yeah, they're showing off what they can do, but their content had nothing to do with Pushpin Studios. Even Seymour Quast later did a, a journal called The Nose, which I edited maybe 10 issues of. It was about promoting himself, but it was more than that. It was about, it's as if you're writing an essay and you're sending it to people through email because you want people to read it, you want people to see it. And then you also want people to keep your name in their minds. You know, it's the kind of thing that we could say that Bradley, his book, was a blog. Yes. <laughs> um, I want to read a paragraph about how you described the conditions that were in place when the Pushpin Monthly Graphic first came out. You write, designers and illustrators felt a giddy excitement when Pushpin Studios introduced its arresting experimental, the Pushpin Monthly Graphic. Its creative groundswell altered the course of graphic style and design practice for subsequent generations. Pushpin's principal co-founders, Seymour Quast and Milton Glaser, awoke a somnambulant post-war field with cage-rattling effect comparable to the way the new typography revolutionized advertising and book design and ushered in radical change throughout fine and applied arts in the 1920s. 
while exhuming Victorian, Art Nouveau, and Art Deco mannerisms, Pushpin remained contemporary in a formal sense and fresh in its conceptual outlook. Can you talk a little bit about how and why Milton and Seymour wanted to create this new vehicle for promotion and for design reporting? I remember being, I think it was, I was 17, and I met this artist because I was, I was actually an art director when I was 17. And I met this artist who um, showed me the pushpin graphic for the first time. I remember she lived near Times Square when you could live near Times Square. And she pulled out these issues. And I was coming from an underground press background, uh, radical lefty press. I looked at these things and they were very decorative in my eyes. And she was ecstatic. She said, these things, we wait so long to get these. They come out, you know, every four months or something like that. And when they do, they're an inspiration. They're a tonic. And I looked at it and I thought, it looks so old. You know, it looks like post-psychedelia. And I was wrong, of course. You know, you look at things differently with youthful eyes, ignorant eyes. And that's what causes you to break the mold And then you look back at it and think, well, I broke the mold, but that was a pretty damn good mold. Pushpin Graphic ended up being a financial failure, though it boosted Pushpin's reputation and reaped them lots and lots of commissions. Do you think it would have been as successful at the time if it was online? You know, it's the kind of thing that is hard to answer because it requires prescience. Mm -hmm. If it were online... And we were in a different society and a different technological culture. It would have a different kind of influence, just as all things going viral today are making celebrities out of nobodies. I'm glad that they had an opportunity to do it in print. But if they were starting out today, Pushpin wouldn't just be a print agency. It would be a video. It would be a digital. It would be all sorts of things that it wasn't. So it's kind of fruitless to talk about what it could have been. It's so interesting, though, to imagine what the possibilities technology have allowed us to be able to create and what, if anything, should or could have been improved with that technology. Part of me feels like that should be exactly the way it was at that particular time, and that's that. But then I think maybe it's just because I'm old. You know, the kind of difficult spreads in the book are the ones where the publications lasted more than 10 years. Is that because they shifted in context? They shifted in look. You know, ID Magazine, which started out as industrial design magazine, which went to international design magazine, which went to ID Magazine, all I could fit in were four, five, six covers and spreads. So you don't really see the full evolutionary range of the, uh, the publication. Um, I would say the same about print in and terms print, of definitely. all the covers. Because you look at the old covers of print, and they're brilliant. Not the ones when Rudge was doing the magazine, but even those were kind of nice given the patina they had. But once uh, Marty Fox got into it, and even before that, there were some amazing covers by amazing people. Leo Leone was an editor for a while, and some of those covers were fantastic. CA Magazine. I was looking back when it was Communication Arts Magazine, when it was originally CA Magazine. Some of those covers are brilliant as well. And some of the topics that they covered were terrific, just as print 
covered some amazing historical things. I've been going through duplicate issues and tearing out articles, and I find that I have piles and piles of things that are historically significant. You'd think that given our sensory overload now that those types of covers would do really, really well in our society where they're really provocative, really eye-stopping. Yet it seems that most, if not all, the current graphic design magazines have covers with lots of typography, very little provocation, and a real sense of being a magazine as opposed to a cultural object. And I'm wondering if you have any sense of why that's happened. Is it because of the newsstand? Well, I'm not sure the assumption is totally correct. Okay. One of my favorite magazines, and I'm sure anybody who's out there who collects magazines will agree, Portfolio, yes. which was designed by Alexei Brodovich and edited by Frank Zachary, who is still alive, by the way. Those covers were remarkable, but they weren't provocative in the sense that you and I are talking about. The first one just said portfolio on it, and it was done in stencil type, two color, three color, something like that. You don't think that that's black. provocative? It was provocative in the sense that all regular uh, mainstream magazines on the stands had full photographs. So, yes, it was a divergence from that norm. But you look at them today, and they're very tame. These magazines had aesthetically beautiful covers. Let's put it that way. That's correct. And the aesthetics were such that you wish a magazine would do that again today. Yes, because of the newsstand sales and the like, they probably can't. But, you know, iMagazine still maintains what I consider a provocative cover, not in the agitational sense, but in the sense that you want to pick it up, you want to hold it. It's printed beautifully. Usually it's a detail of something, and details always are sexy. So they still do it. There was the magazine that came out for a short time that Marty Niemeyer founded and edited Critique. Fantastic. Which was a lovely, lovely, lovely magazine. I wrote for every issue and was really proud to get it when it came out. And his covers, while following a very strict format, typographically, always seem different, always seem fresh. They seem challenging. I guess that's what I mean by provocative. They made me sort of stop and consider it. Right. And given that it's about design and graphic design in particular, if you can do that, if you can embrace something and feel nice about something, good about something, that's your profession. You feel proud about it. It gives you a a house pride or whatever. Grafis used to do great covers, under Walter Hertig and later Martin Peterson. A lot of those covers, and I have all of the graphices going way back, you know, they're still stunning, as was the latter uh, Gabras Grafique. There was a middle period of Gabras Grafique. Let's talk a little bit more about critique and at the same time talk about emigre. Rudy Vanderlands and Zuzana Licko, husband and wife team of emigres from the Netherlands and Czechoslovakia, founded emigre in San Francisco. It developed into an experimental wellspring of digital typography and design, probably because they were both early adopters of the Macintosh. Susanna designed custom typefaces for the magazine, and Rudy used them in layouts that rejected what you call a modernist rigidity in favor of improvisation. It was pretty provocative, (laughs) to use that word. And it caused a big fuss. Absolutely. 
But its shape-changing, sort of its provocateur status, began with issue number 39, graphic design, the next big thing, um, wherein Vanderlands addressed the hype surrounding electronic publishing and its facilitator, the Internet, but also introduced a surprisingly minimalist typographic design that belied the magazine's origins. Can you talk a little bit about the impact that Emma Gray had, what it changed, how it changed, and what influence it had on you? Well, I'd say that Emigre was as important as Jan Schiekold's Typographische Mittelungen. It came out of nowhere and really made a typographic statement, which bordered on a political statement. Instead of being what I would consider left-wing, it was kind of pushing politics away. And this typography, the code for the typography, seemed to me at the time a kind of pushing away of all rational thought. When, in fact, I look back on these things and there's a different kind of rational thought. It's all very structured. So I think Emigre started out as a, uh, a subversive journal, which I don't know whether Rudy and Susanna felt that that's what they were doing. You know, it basically was an organ for their type foundry. Not unlike Bradley the book. Exactly. So it made a statement. It got people involved. It got more people involved in graphic design than anything else of that particular era. And in many ways, I feel that Emma Gray positioned the designer as artist, as provocateur, as cultural commenter, as somebody important. Well, let's say this. It positioned the designer as author. Yeah. Which is the term that I use and my co-chair, Lita Tellerigo, use for our MFA program, designer as author and entrepreneur. And I think they did both. They were entrepreneurs. They were authors of content. The design was their content to a certain extent. But it was beyond that. I mean, they, they did things that were, uh, they did evolve. They didn't stand still. And it wasn't like, okay, now we're going to do a redesign. That has happened with every magazine. It's now time for a redesign. Theirs seemed to evolve naturally. There was an organic quality to it. <laughs> it seemed like the world was redesigned after their magazines came out. More or less, yeah. Um, so Emma Gray ran from 1984 to 2005. Critique ran from 1986 to 2001. You write that when Critique premiered in the summer of 1996, its founder, Marty Neumeier, was reacting against the fact that most professional journals revolved around personalities, techniques, materials, and awards. And there was no criticism, no discussion of the internal experience of being a designer. Um, He imagined a journal that would debunk a lot of the priesthood nonsense of current design while honoring the true geniuses and heroes of the profession. I should reread this book because I like what you're reading. (laughs) It's really fantastic. I was like, wait a minute. I I was reading both of these magazines at the time, and I was fully involved in the design culture and watching it all happen. And it seems to me that if you look at what Emigre was doing, the stance against Emigre wouldn't have necessarily seemed to be critique, yet it was. Well, it was and it wasn't. Marty... Uh, did a beautiful job. He he had been involved in Graffis uh, at some point as a writer. And his approach to design was more traditional. But it was traditional in a very modern sense, the way Kit Heinrichs was traditional, the way Marty Peterson was traditional. It was contemporary. 
it didn't go out of its way to be revolutionary or slash revolting. Um, <laughs> I love the word revolting. You know, so you look at those magazines, they kind of look like great corporate annual reports, which is where he also came from. The content was good. It framed the content very nicely. I mean, I always loved when people made flat surfaces look dimensional and Marty was great or his design staff was great at taking a magazine and putting a shadow underneath, (laughs) Uh, you know, to give you that illusion. Uh, Very white paper, traditional magazine size. The color was well printed. It wasn't overglossed. Seems like the Apple designers probably took a lot from Marty Neumeyer. You know, you look at Apple's design and you look at Marty's design, and it's something you want to hold on to. I mean, going through them for this book, they were as fresh to me as they were when they first started. It's a different experience. Emma Gray, I have all those issues and was going through all of them for the book. It was not so much the aesthetic experience that I was involved in. It was the whole gestalt of the moment that it brought back. I gained a new appreciation for the aesthetics and for the logic within that aesthetic system. But you experience them differently. Does it seem dated now that that work is what I would consider looking back on it now so influenced by the 90s? You know what's interesting about most of these design magazines, and you may not agree with me having seen the book, nothing seems dated. Interesting. The things that seem dated are the real trade magazines that just didn't use, that had columns of typography or columns of type and a straight headline and and a picture. Before they were using graphic design to cloak the printing. More or less, more (laughs) or less. But even the covers then were kind of neat. Most of these magazines, to me, from my vantage point, don't seem dated. They seem like they come of a particular time, but being dated is a a pejorative. Being of a time is not. So Emigre lasted for 11 great years. Critique lasted for five or six years. There are some remarkable magazines in your book that lasted for two years. And when I look at a magazine that lasted for two years, that was radical, that made a difference in those two years, I can't help but wonder, what was the flaw here? Was it the business plan? Was it the investors? Why and how can you have a magazine that comes out, makes such a big deal, such a big difference, and then disappear all within 24 months? Which one are you thinking of? Well, Bradley, his book lasted a year. Portfolio. Yes. Two years, 1949 to 1951. That's disgraceful. That was one of the best magazines that has ever been printed. It was a gorgeous magazine that was done on the side. Barodovich was working at Bazaar. Frank Zachary was about ready to go to holiday. It didn't have any money. It didn't take any advertising. You could call it a business plan, but when they decided to do this magazine, they weren't thinking business plan. A lot of these magazines start because somebody says, hey, let's start a magazine. That's the great thing about magazines in general, but design magazines as well. Once you start taking paper company advertising and ink company advertising and all the other stuff, it bulks out the magazine, but it doesn't make for a beautiful magazine. And if you're a design magazine, you either have to decide you're going in the trade direction and you're going to do all this stuff and you're going to sacrifice and just have a little editorial well or you're going to go the distance and make a magazine that's about the subject 
that you're dealing with, which is design and aesthetics and beauty and, and ugly and all of those things, and let the chips fall where they may. One of the more recent magazines we have is Slanted, which is a beautiful magazine, beautiful in terms of its typographic coverage and in the way it looks. How they survive, I don't know. And there are some printing magazines that were started printing in the eighteen late 1800s that are still being printed today. Yeah. Of the 100 magazines in the book, 28 are still being published, but only three are being published from before 1950, print and communication arts among them. What do you attribute to their longevity? They were set up as businesses. And in the case of CA, it's still a family-run business. And in the case of print... It has gone through a number of owners, but it started as a a business passion of uh, Robert Cadell, who was its uh, original founder. Well, he bought it from the Rudge family. You know, I look back at some of the old issues, and they're very thick, full of advertising. I still think print has a lot to say and a lot to give, but it's much thinner now. Do you see the printed journal, the printed magazine or publication still a viable business? Do you think that all magazines are going to end up as PDFs? It's a question I don't like to think about. That's where I put my head in the sand, because I still love writing for printed magazines. Uh, And I do for I and Baseline, which is coming out less regularly now, and for print, which still is quite regular. But I do the vast majority of my design journalism or design criticism for online publications. I don't know. People will always want print. They'll always want something that they can have and hold. And whether it's a PDF or it's a bound journal or it's a print-on-demand, it's just not in my uh, Do you think it's a dumb question? I mean, it's sort of like asking if radio would still continue with the advent of the television. Maybe it's just the good stuff remains. No, I think it's not a dumb question. I think the question has to be reformulated somewhat. Are there enough people out there who want to buy a magazine devoted to graphic design? Do people have that kind of passion or interest for that subject? You know, there's the magazine IDN, which comes out of Hong Kong, which is really jazzy and very youthful and comes with CDs every so often or jump drives or mainframe computers come with it, you know, whatever. But people buy into these things because they represent something. When you have a magazine like that, you don't see them just piling up and collecting dust. You see them as part of your culture. However, now there's more things that pile up and more things that get dusty. Steve, one last question. If you were giving advice for somebody that was interested in starting a graphic design magazine, what would you tell them? Don't. <laughs> no, no, I, you I would, wouldn't. no, you wouldn't. I, I would tell them to come up with a really good plan for sustainability. There's no point really to do something that is just going to be a lark. You said it a moment ago. There are some that only lasted a year or two years. If you see that possibility down the road, why bother? You know, it's a lot of energy and effort to do this. There was a magazine called Octavo out of England. Hamish Muir and some others, it said at the outset, we're only going to do eight issues. There's a magazine called Creation out of Japan. They were only going to do 20 issues. If you set those goals, that's fine. That's called a plan. 
But if you're just putting something out and hoping it'll work, then that's not a plan, and then that's a waste of everybody's energy. Sounds a lot like life. Ah, life. Stephen Heller's latest book, co-authored with Jason Godfrey, is 100 Classic Graphic Design Journals, and it is absolutely fantastic. Thank you for being on the show, Steve. Always a pleasure. To keep up with what Steve is thinking and reading, visit the blog he writes for print magazine called The Daily Heller. It is a must-read. I'd like to thank you for listening, and remember... We can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.